Hello, welcome to the Eating for Health podcast. I'm Dr. Harriet Home, founder of Healthy Eating Doctor, registered nutritionist and doctor. I studied medicine at Cambridge University, worked in the NHS for over a decade, have a PhD in genetics, lecture on nutrition and was commissioned to write a novel degree combining culinary skills, nutrition and health. I'm on a mission to break down nutrition myths and share science-backed nutrition to help empower you. I'll share some interviews, theories and practical tips focused around nutrition and health. Stay tuned to find out more. This week, I'm joined by Professor Amanda Kirby, who started her career as a GP, then worked in adult psychiatry and stress management, but changed her career when her second child was diagnosed with dyspraxia, a developmental coordination disorder at the age of just three. Her family is very neurodivergent, with children and adults diagnosed with dyslexia, autism, dyspraxia, developmental language disorder and ADHD, providing her with a unique understanding, insight and passion that continues to raise awareness. Her experience and frustration as a parent finding her way around the health and education system led her to consequently starting up an interdisciplinary specialist centre for parents and children in Wales more than 25 years ago in order to be able to provide practical, robust support. Amanda has been on government advisory boards, for example, the Hidden Impairment National Group, as well as advising UK and international charities in the field of neurodiversity. This includes being a patron on the Dyspraxia Association in New Zealand, chair of Movement Matters UK and works with great UK charities, including the Dyspraxia Foundation, British Dyslexia Association, North East Autism Society and is a trustee of the ADHD Foundation Campaigning to Embrace Neurodiversity. Amanda is also a paid consultant for Equizen, producer of Omega-3 supplements, and I talked with her today about the importance of Omega-3 and its role in brain function and neurodiversity. So it's a real pleasure to have Amanda here with us today, and I'm really looking forward to talking to her about Omega-3, and I've got lots of uh, questions to ask her, as I'm sure have you. So over to her first, and let's just find out how she describes herself. Thank you, uh, Harriet, for introducing me. So I sort of describe myself as an oddball, so I don't quite fit into a neat box. I'm a a medic, worked in general practice, uh, run a, a neurodevelopmental service for 25 years, and done research in the field of neurodevelopmental disorders uh, and um, really got interested in nutrition as part of that solution of understanding children and why they might be helped with their attention and concentration, particularly in their cognition um, and what were barriers to those things as well. So that's got me into this and, and a personal background because I've got a whole family of neurodivergent children and grandchildren as well so there was a sort of personal reason for getting into this area as well. And I think that is a big driver isn't it having that you know obviously you want to help your patients but um, having that personal touch does I think change you as a as a clinician and, and maybe have a greater insight as well. Yeah, I think so. I think you're you're seeing the trials and tribulations of getting children to eat food, very food. And some of my children and grandchildren eat everything and some are quite selective eaters. So I've seen it from both sides. And I think it's also really different being a parent and, and being on the other side of the um, the clinical divide, you know, on the wrong side of the table, almost, shall I say. Yeah. Um, so great. So first of all, if you could just sort of tell us what omega-3 fatty acids are and why they're important. Yeah. So 60% of our brain is made up of fat. So that's the first thing. And we have different sorts of uh, fatty acids. We've got omega-3, we've got DEPA and DHA, we've got different. And these are 
different components that come together and help your nerves work effectively in your brain so the, help the connections in the brain and what we know is there's important to get the ratio of these different fatty acids in your brain that are, need to be right um, they help those nerve cells connect and help your cognition your memory um, how you do everything is really important now if we go back hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years um, we used to think that we used to have sort of one-to-one -one ratio between the fatty acids. So there was a proportion that we had omega-6 and omega-3, these the different types of fatty acids. And what we've known over the last few years is Western diets have changed hugely. So we've gone from that ratio, which we think is important for our, our brains to function properly. As I said, 60% of the brain is made up of fat to in some cases, the ratio going from 1 to 1 to 10 to 1, or even in some cases, 20 to 25 to 1. And there's a number of different reasons why that's happened. But a change in our food and what we eat day to day is going to be absolutely the main reason for that. And so just to sort of um, say as well that the reason why they're called essential fatty acids is because you can't make them in your body. And so I think it's a really important point to add to that that they are essential because of all of the reasons you've just outlined but we can't make them we can't synthesize them from other fats you have to eat them in your diet and while um ala you know, can be uh, converted to to the other forms so if you're having the vegan form the sort of plant-based form the mm -hmm. ala can be converted you still have to eat it that's really important and how much should we be eating a week well, we should be eating uh, two, at least two portions of, of fatty fish per week. Uh, sadly, that's not the case, you know, and particularly children. There was a, a study done by Krantz in 2017 that would look back from 2008 to 2012, looking at actually how much fish, fatty fish and just not fatty fish, non-oily fish, um, how many, much children were eating. And in this study, they showed that 4.7% were eating non-oily fish and 4.5% were eating oily fish. And only 1.3% of these children were eating both. So, and I don't think things have improved over the last few years. So the, the problem is, as you said, rightly so, you have to get these foods from your diet. You have to eat them in one form or another. That's going to be really important. And if you think about children eating, I remember when growing up and I was being given sardines on toast, you know, that would be a tea time treat. I actually still quite like it. Um, but salmon, sardines, mackerel, herring, trout, those were things that you would see. So, you know, mackerel would be something people would have. Uh, a lot of children, if you said, have you ever eaten mackerel or sardines, would look at you sort of blankly. They really would. You know, if you said sardines on toast, I think a lot of kids would go Ugh, as well. Mm. So we've got a problem with the type of foods children eat and uh, and actually getting oily fish into their diets on a regular basis. So twice a week is ideal. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess sort of part of the concern from a parent point of view is that risk of contamination is, you know, there's a lot of pollution and especially heavy metal and mercury pollution. So what's the sort of the optimum balance? And is it about two portions? Sort of are you are you then trying to balance pollution and the benefit of omega-3? 
Yeah, I think I think there's a great fear about pollution, but I think, you know, and purity of, of fatty acids is important, you know, um, but two portions a week, you're not going to get poisoned by that, you know, and, and if you're getting good sources of, of oily fish as well, where you're getting it, that's going to make a difference as well. So, you know, purity and and opportunity, but, you know, if you're having, and you can have canned fish, so you can have things like canned sardines or or you can have, salmon but there is a challenge we have a challenge with that is to ensure that there is purity but two ideally would be a good start we're not getting there we're not getting two no i i think probably a lot of children are not are not getting two and it's not just uh you know having that two in a week once a month it's having that two in a week every single week and i think that's um you know can be a struggle for a lot of adults as well not just children especially then people that don't like fish or if you're vegan or vegetarian then where else can you get the omega-3 then that you need well you can get it with supplements so you can have um, omega-3 supplements that's important it's a source some children really don't like you know, really don't like eating fish. We've got to recognise that. For some people, actually, it might be difficult to get or they're not you know, used to cooking with it as well. So they can have omega-3 supplements. And the supplements then have that balance of the omega-6 and omega-3. They're, they're measured, they're pure, so you know what you're getting. That's important because we need to get adequate amounts in our diet as well. And so you're, you know what you're getting, you know you're getting a measured amount. Uh, so that's one way of doing that on a regular basis. And also, I guess, then they're, they're plant-based forms of omega-3 as well. So you've got like your chia seeds, flax seeds, walnuts, nuts, and, and those kind of things, which yeah. are, are harder, though, to get, I think, enough because they're normally the ALA, ALA forms and you do need the you needed more of those to convert because you only convert a very tiny percent, don't you? You do. So I think that is a challenge that you have to have. So getting your children to eat enough of it is is always a challenge. But yes, you can. So like you said, flax and chia seeds. But, you know, if you've ever had chia seeds, you have to have a hell of a lot of them to, to, to have enough, you know. So and obviously um, nuts, some children will have nut allergies. So you've got to be careful about that as well. Yeah. And I just think a sort of interesting fact um, is that women can convert ALA more effectively than men. And I, they think it's to do with increased needs during pregnancy which I think is you know, really fascinating how that uh, has evolved through the through the years to help enable women to have greater access to, to their omega-3 to fetal health because so obviously your the baby's brain is growing during pregnancy and omega-3 is so important for, for all of that as you've just sort of said important for structure and function it is so I mean brain development crucial pregnant in pregnancy obviously you're you've got a fetus inside you that's growing and and developing I think there's interesting that um, we don't know in terms of things like pregnancy gaps so how long does it take to restore your levels we know that it is a it, you know it's about 18 months if you have children close together it might take a longer to restore your own levels to an adequate amount so it's important in pregnancy as well to maintain your omega-3 input uh, intake then do you have stores of omega-3 do you know that will your baby just take it from you what they need well they'll take it from you you know your your baby takes the nutrition from you right the problem being is you've got to recover that and you've got to have adequate stores coming. As you said at the moment, we don't manufacture ourselves omega-3s. It's got to come from external sources. So that's a challenge because it could be that your levels are going down, you're not recovering them, your baby's getting it, but you do need to have that 
continuing intake. What do we know then about the health benefits of omega-3? Well, I think what we do know is um, there are a number of studies. There was a, a in children, if I'm thinking about children, particularly in about cognition and learning and attention, which is the area that I'm particularly interested in. Um, there's been some studies done in over the last probably five, six, seven years, 2014, 15, 16, 17. There was a review study done uh, in 2016, looking at all the studies, showing that there is some evidence to show that omega-3 supplementation um, can help adequate omega-3 levels, but we've we've already discussed that we might not get those adequate um, levels. But in some children, that it helps with uh, cognition, memory, attention, reading skills. So there are some studies showing that. And I'm particularly interested in children who have ADHD, and it does seem that there may be, and we don't know, so it's all of the stuff we don't know, but there may be um, a problem with absorption or conversion. Um, and so it might be even more important for those children. And there are some studies showing that supplementation helps with attention and memory. Um, it might be that some children with ADHD have more selective diets, so they are less likely to have adequate um, absorption and not having enough in, but it might be also in conversion, so they're not being able to convert it as well. Uh, we don't know the mechanisms, but we do know that having supplementation can help them, um, and it's, it, it's, it's worth a try, I think, it really is to help to see. And there's studies there that are coming out in favour of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess really what you have to balance it is is what's the downside of having too much omega-3? Yeah. And that's probably only really during pregnancy, isn't it, that you shouldn't yeah. be having um, yeah. too much because or, or, or the sources need to be carefully thought out because if you're having it from liver, so cod liver oil, it's got that vitamin A in, which is teratogenic, so that's harmful to the fetus. But if you're having a um, pregnancy-friendly um, omega-3 that doesn't contain vitamin A, then that's safe during pregnancy. So are su- supplementing or having that extra portion of, of oily fish or you know a bit more chia seeds or all of those things we've just mentioned, it's got very little downside, really, and it yes. may well help. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you look back and you think about that, proportion you know if we think about the change in western diets and what's happened um we we had a plant-based fish-based diet you know and you think about what is interesting there was a study done um looking at um the difference between children with less education less income you know and so it, it is costly you know to eat in a healthy way but what they did show in one study was those children that had more vegetables had a generally had more fish as well so they were generally having a more healthy diet so again for for parents is thinking about a healthy diet generally with balance and ensuring that you've got think about supplementation or two portions of oily fish a week as part of a balanced diet and I think there's very little risk to that. And just to go back then about this, that omega-3, omega-6 ratio, because I think there was a, a phase when people thought we should just be cutting out omega-6, we should be mm. reducing it, but actually we should be just increasing omega-3, shouldn't we, to make up that ratio? Because yeah, omega-6 is still in lots of healthy food, you know, like other yeah. seeds and, 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 and things. So it's not that we should be cutting out those completely, it's just we should be having lots more omega-3 to make up that ratio. So we're it's having more omega-3 or at least as equal to omega-6 not the other way around 
Absolutely. We still need omega-6, you know, omega-6. We really do. We, it's not that we don't need it and it's bad for you. It's the, it's the problem with the ratios. I did a piece of work about 15 years ago and we screened, we swabbed lots of children, hundreds of children in schools. So there was a sort of spit and swabs and it was lovely, really. <laughs> but but we looked at their levels and we were finding in, uh, in about 300 children in about 18 primary schools, their ratio was between 11 and 25 to 1, you know, and across socioeconomic groups. But again, really showing sort of healthier diets where you're more likely to have a better balance, you know, of that. But as you say, you've got to have both. It's not all or nothing. You need a balanced diet and you need to up your omega-3. That's what's dropped over the last few years. It really has considerably. And there are lots of health benefits to having that greater omega-3 ratio, aren't there? Because omega-3 is uh, is anti-inflammatory, where omega-6 is more associated with inflammation. Yeah. And so if you've got a more pro-inflammatory, uh, so we know that long-term inflammation, long-term chronic inflammation is associated with a number of different health diseases, like increased cardiovascular risk, increased risk mm-hmm. of cancer. Mm-hmm. And so while om- taking omega-3 isn't just going to cure your cancer or anything like that, having the correct ratio, so having higher omega-3 to omega-6 can reduce your long-term risk of lots of, of well, first of all, of inflammation, and secondly, mm-hmm. then the subsequent diseases that that's associated with i think it's a really interesting area as well because i'm I'm, my area is neurodevelopmental conditions and we're starting to understand sort of inflammatory processes associated with some of those conditions as well so i'm particularly interested in a holistic view of how do we support an individual and you know as a medic often we look in we have looked latterly in silos quite often so we've looked at the brain and separated the brain from the body you know even though it is connected but also thinking about inflammatory processes as well and thing and not thinking about say neurodevelopmental conditions a bit like diabetes that we think of as a whole system challenge you know we wouldn't consider not think about diabetes and think about eyes and and cardiovascular system and the arterial system and our and our kidneys we think about that all the time you know but in the same way we don't in neurodevelopmental conditions even though we see increased inflammatory conditions with associated with some so i think this is really important we're starting to say okay nutrition works every, you know good nutrition doesn't only work on your brain it's working on your inflammatory processes it's working on your cognition and memory you are what you eat you know it's it's that, that phrase is very true i agree and i think it's only really in recent years as well with the sort of um, the increased research in the microbiome and the greater understanding of how it all is a huge interplay between everything the gut two-way gut brain yeah. access yeah. and how just our gut health really um, is linked to so many other things I, I think it's only now we're beginning to understand the importance of it and see it in a sort of more holistic multifactorial way yeah I guess if we just talk about then about the sort of what are the health benefits of it again so we've talked about children but in adults as well there's some mixed evidence isn't there that um, omega-3 might help with working memory although in other studies they've shown that that's not the case but mm-hmm. certainly it does look as though omega-3s linked or has has linked with possibly um, levels of DHA in the brain and Alzheimer's disease. So I know that we just talked about neurodevelopmental disease in children, and there is that interesting, um, sort of quite a lot of mixed evidence, isn't there, about, about working memory in omega-3 in adults, that omega-3 might help various neuro um, neurocognitive 
functions but it's quite difficult to sort of tease it out because in other studies it, it hasn't hasn't found that in other higher sort of level Cochrane report so but also as well if you think of sort of the brain function and structure there have been associated reports of omega-3 being linked with Alzheimer's disease and certainly patients with Alzheimer's disease do have lower levels of DHA than um, than, than healthy people and that might be um, associated with preservation of brain volume and function so there's certainly lots more research to be done and lots more understanding of of the role really and I think you know as the more we understand Alzheimer's and the more we understand that there are things that we can do to you know prevent it or certainly prevent some of the severity of it so I think it's an area of of lots of really important research especially with an aging population you know, risk of dementia is um, significant. So can you tell us a little bit more then about the relationship between omega-3 and neurodevelopment that, that you've looked at in your research and there's some of yeah. the studies out there? I think it's really important when we think about um, what are we what are we trying to measure improvement in and uh, in neurodevelopmental conditions, particularly ADHD, we're thinking about the ability to focus and concentrate and to um, so then you can interact in the classroom and you can stay on task if you're a child with ADHD. I'm particularly interested in that, um, personally and professionally, actually. Um, And Barrigan's study in 2014 was a key study because it showed that, in fact, omega-3 supplementation helped with um, attention and memory. You were mentioning about working memory in adults, but actually working memory in children is very important because we can't read and uh, and retain information if we haven't got good working memory. And there may be a link, although I'm not an expert in the, the, uh, the in dementia, but there may be a link that's important for long-term brain health that we do ensure that we're getting the omega-3 supplements or, or food in. So um, Barrigan showed an imp- it was an important study because what it did show was that with ADHD, you had an improvement in symptomatology. Now, whether, and we, what we don't know, we need more research in this. And I think there's been a paucity of research looking at nutritional supplementation. Um, there's been some work from uh, Canada and also from New Zealand looking at uh, multivitamins and minerals as well as omega-3 supplementation, helping children with not only with ADHD, but with other conditions like bipolar disorder as well. I think we've got to really think about where does that fit? And it could be that some children need a combination. So they may need medication plus supplementation. Some children might actually benefit from having supplementation first. Try that, you know, make sure they're having adequate omega-3. See if that improves uh, the ability to focus and concentrate. If not, then move on to having um, medication and there's different sorts of medication for ADHD as well. What we know, I think, is it, what we know is not a lot. But what we do know is that children react differently. You know, these are umbrella terms. So ADHD isn't one thing. It's polygenic. There's lots of different genes. And that might be different ways that we're processing information in the brain in different ways. So that some children might respond really well and other children might not respond as well. So it's a bit of suck it and see. But it's not dangerous to suck it and see. I think that's the important thing. And if that improves that child's concentration and focus, that has major implications for their um, socially, you know, to, to with their peers, um, their, with their educational attainment. 
we need more studies. We need more information. But I think that was a very important study. And, and, and I think the review that was done in, in um, looking overall at the studies are coming out with a balance that this is important, you know, and we need to raise awareness of that amongst general population and particularly amongst parents who have children who have neurodevelopmental conditions as well. Have there been any studies to look at whether it's possible to, well, to prevent then ADHD with omega-3 or is that just, you know, we still need much more research, do we? I don't think we can prevent it because I think it's a it's a polygenic condition. You know, I've got ADHD running through the, my blood and my family all over the place. So you know, it's it's um, there's there's epigenetics though. So there might be nutrition uh, part of that, and we do know there's uh, a study done by Dinkler in and uh, Minnis in Scotland, which is a, a big study looking at the combination of. Um, adverse childhood events nutrition is part of that you've got very poor nutrition um, and neurodevelopmental conditions and the outcome and showing a synergy between the two so we know that nutrition poor nutrition could switch on those genes so to increase your chance of having ADHD or could reverse it as well right so I think that's really important uh you know poor nutrition is not good for children's developing brains it really isn't but it might be much worse for some children than others yeah no that's a really interesting voice isn't it that depending on your genetic and um, predisposition or propensity to have those um difficulties and and that I think the sort of the the new territory of or relatively new territory of epigenetics. So that's these switches on the surface of your DNA, which then effectively yeah. act sort of switch on and off genes. Yeah. We're really still learning about how how it actually affects so many different things, and also how your in uterine um, environment switches on or you know has a potential to switch on and off these various things. So the epigenetic. Um, and how that affects your long-term health, your long-term risk of obesity. And also now there is our links with um, ASD, so autistic spectrum disorder, and some of those um, potentially sort of early programming or nutritional early programming. So it's really interesting how, how much more we're, we're learning about it. And, and then I guess if you don't have um, a neurodevelopmental disorder and you're um, otherwise well and healthy, has there been any research to look to see whether omega-3 in, can still increase your concentration and cognition and working memory? There is there is um, some work showing some, but the, the jury's out about who it benefits and who it doesn't. So I think it's difficult. We've got some studies showing some improvement with reading and spelling in mainstream populations. But, but I think we need more studies, bigger studies, to show... And then to target. But I think, we, you know, if you think about general well-being, long-term cardiovascular health, long-term cognition and memory, it's a bit like it's good for it's very good for some and it's quite good for others. You know, it's not um, I think that's really important. And the long-term implications. So you were talking about inflammatory processes. We don't know that if you've had poor nutrition in childhood, what the long-term implications are in adulthood. And what we're certainly seeing in neurodevelopmental disorders, uh, in ASD, ADHD, that we see emerging. Um, so you can, you're can you now seeing, we used to say that you'd only ha have ADHD if you uh, got your symptoms under the age of seven. We're now recognising that some children are emerging in their teens, late teens and adulthood with symptoms that are emerging later on. Now, what we don't know 
what's the trigger for that, right? And whether that is, uh, it could be nutritionally based, you've had long term, you might have those epigenetics, so you might have the risk of and having a prolonged poor diet might have an implication and just turn those switches on if it is prolonged over a period of time. So we don't know tr- something happening at two it doesn't have an impact at 14 or 40. I think that's really important to just think about our long-term well-being. And we think about it in dietary terms, that actually having a poor diet and uh, obesity in young age of children has a long-term impact of risks of things like diabetes later on, uh, you know, and heart disease later on. So that does seem like it would be common sense to think about poor fatty acid nutrition has got long-term implication on, say, inflammation, cognition, memory, but we don't know. No, and I think as uh, as it becomes easier and we understand epigenetics more, it'll be fascinating to see or I, I hope that research will be done to actually then unpick those various associations, actually do the epigenetics on on children and adults, which, you know, are becoming pretty easy to do now. You know, I think when I first started genet- you know, doing genetics 10 years ago, you know, doing GWAS, so genome-wide sequencing, cost an absolute fortune and took forever. And now it's so quick and easy um, and so much cheaper. It's more accessible. And so I hope in the future, you know, there'll be many more studies that will be able to look at and answer these particular questions then and I guess time will tell because so much of this is is going to be long-term and long-term information and data that's needed as well. And I think we're starting to understand sort of you know neurotransmitter function and as you say once we understand the epigenetics we can get better at balance and fine-tuning what children and adults need. Um, Yeah I think it's a different we're in a different era um, and whether we'll end up with sort of personalised medicine in the years to come, who knows? I think we're way away from that at the moment. We need to just get the basics right. I think we haven't got that right at the moment. Let's get children to eat, you know, a decent, balanced diets. That would be great as starters. And when you're seeing sort of the review with, you know, only 1.3% of children eating an appropriate diet of omega-3 and omega-6, that's lousy it really is we've got a huge gap and i and if anything in the last 10 years probably this has deteriorated i would say uh, yeah and i i can't imagine that the last 18 months and food poverty will have will have helped sadly which and it you know it's it's really sad to to hear that uh, sort of another question then is about whole food effect and i know that some of the studies have looked at just the difference between supplementing omega-3 and then eating it in a in a fish what do we know about that then? Um, well, you, it's about what the the ratios are. It's about the level. So, you know, if you've got a supplement, you know exactly what you're getting. So you know the ratio of, of EPA to DHA. And so you know what it is. You know the purity. So that that's different. So it, when you're eating it, we're not so sure. We're not sure of the source. Um, it depends on the size of the portion. So you, the sort of quality control and quantity control is harder Obviously, when you've got a, a supplement, you can actually control for all of those things. So, and you're synthesizing it, you're purifying it, so you're getting a, an, a. It's a bit like any medication that's been produced. You're getting a standard. So there, there is a, a challenge with that, you know, in the sense of if you're eating it, we're not so sure how much you're getting in. And you know, when we talk about two portions a week, what's a portion? You know, um, 
portion sizes for some things often like portion sizes for chips sometimes are not portion sizes <laughs> they're too many you know too many chips on a plate so I think that's the other thing is making sure you get adequate amounts and that can be controlled in a, in a supplement that may not be as easily controlled in a food portion and also I guess that sometimes um, there have been benefits shown with actually eating the fish over the supplements maybe because there are other things in the fish as well that we don't yeah. know about that they aren't being eaten in isolation that there's other chemicals other compounds that together they're having an effect so there's lots yeah. more to understand and unpick about all of this really isn't there there are and I think you know when we're looking at uh, you know families that have are eating fish as I said I think eat more healthily generally so you're starting to consider what other things should be I be giving when you're thinking about shall I do fish you also think about okay what else should I put on the plate mm-hmm. and you're starting to think about how do I present it so, you know, to encourage the child to eat. So then you're thinking about vegetables to go with it and how to entice your child to have a healthier plate. And uh, and that's got some social biases as well in the sense of you need to know how to cook, you need to know how to to prepare the food and to, to do that, and you need to have the funds to do so. So we need to be getting education in schools to get kids cooking and understanding this really early on as well. I think that would make a big difference. A lot of people don't do a great deal of cooking. But also, I think a lot of people don't have a time for a great deal of cooking. And I think, you know, no. in a busy, modern family, yeah, juggling absolutely. kids and work, or if you're a single parent, um, you know, you're, you're short on cash. It's, it's, it's really hard. a struggle. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. So I think we need to provide, you know, families with tools to cook healthy, simple meals, you know, that are quick and easy to do. That's really important when you're trying to balance different children's likes and dislikes. As I said, some children who are on the autism spectrum can have very selective um, eating requirements, don't like certain textures, don't like certain smells. Mm. So that can be quite challenging. Then you might be cooking three different meals for your children all at the same time, which I remember doing with my kids at one point, I think, (laughs) which is not easy when you're balancing jobs and other things as well, as you say. No, I think it's hard enough for a lot of people to cook one meal a day for their family, let, let alone uh, multiple. So it's certainly a challenge. Um, well, it's been really fascinating talking to you. And I just want to sort of point to my website. There's a, an article on Omega-3 and the, all of the other health associations with it about um, rheumatoid arthritis and, um, and also about Alzheimer's as well. But just before we finish, I know this is going to be a really difficult topic to answer and you may well not be able to tell me, but what makes a good supplement then? Like how, if, we, if we're struggling to get it into our diet we're struggling to get our kids to eat um, fish and, and seeds and nuts how and we're looking for a supplement what makes a good one how could we choose a good one um i think looking at uh quality so quality of the supplements the uh looking at the dha epa ratio is is important uh have a look what people have written about it as well so find out people go on blogs and read about it a uh, source of where the fat, the fish oils have come from is going to be important. Um, and cheap isn't always very good either. So I think don't go for the cheapest one because it may be that the source of fish oil and the purification process isn't as good as well. I think I, I personally think it's a real struggle actually to look for quality markers in not just omega-3, but supplements in general. I think they're not right. under the same regulations as drugs. No. Um, and the sort of requirements them are really different. The requirements to show that they're beneficial, you know, for publications also as, as well, it's just not there. Um, no. And while they can make claims to say things that, um, 
that uh, is it all a bit looser than it is in the, in the drug market and I, I think it's quite a struggle for a lot of people and certainly for me you know as a nutritionist and registered nutritionist and a scientist as a doctor I still find it really hard to know what the market right. quality are you know what does quality look like so I'm sure we're not the only ones but all I can say is as you say find a reputable brand find one that's got a good ratio of EPA to DHA and um and is in triglyceride form as well shouldn't really smell fishy either <laughs> you know i think that's important because you've got to have tolerability as well um so I think that if it's smelling fishy, that's not a great thing. Either. <laughs> and I'd also say sustainability. You know, I think, so do I. you know, yeah. it's just COP26 has just happened. We shouldn't be, you know, krill oil is really harmful for the environment. We should be having, yeah. you know, something that's sustainable. It's not going to kill off the environment at the same time. And um, and so where possible, try and get it in your diet first. If you can't, then supplement and top up as needed. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. I really hope you enjoyed listening and I'd love if you'd give me a five-star review and subscribe so that other people can find me too. I'm also at Healthy Eating Doctor on Instagram and I have lots more nutrition education information on both my video courses and on my website, healthyeatingdoctor.com.